Production support comes from Smithville, a locally owned business serving central and southern Indiana since 1922 with residential and business internet, voice, and security services. Smithville, local pride, global technology. Information at smithville.net. Also, Premier Ortho, a division of Premier Healthcare, helping people living with injuries and chronic back, spine, or joint pain to get back on their feet. Premier Ortho, 333-1933. Online at mypremierortho.com. Welcome to Noon Edition. I'm Bob Zaltzberg, editor of the Herald Times, along with Sarah Whitmeyer, news director of WFIU and WTIU, who's sitting in for Mary Catherine Carmichael today. And uh, we're going to be talking about some issues with three guests that we have here in the studio. Uh, Indiana hospitals will be adding a new heart defect test for newborns starting in January. Our guests will discuss that newly passed law and that test, as well as uh, other issues that doctors, parents, and newborns face right after a baby's birth. Joining us in the studio are Dr. Richard Malone, pediatrician with Southern Indiana Pediatrics, a part of IU Health Southern Indiana Physicians. Georgianne Catalano, one of our uh, return visitors. Georgianne is Executive Director for Bloomington Area Birth Services. Christine McCormick is here. Christine is the mother of Cora, who died at five days old of congenital heart disease. She petitioned the state to pass the law that mandates heart screening for newborns. And also joining us in uh, a little bit will be Dr. Stephen Downs, uh, an MD from the Indiana University School of Medicine. Uh, and he's also uh, an associate professor of pediatrics in a Regenstrief Institute affiliated scientist. If you want to join the conversation, call us at 855-0811 or toll-free 877-285-9348. And WFIU.org slash Noon Edition is our web address to join a live chat. Sarah, thanks for being here. Thank you, Bob. It's great to be here. I'm really excited to get this discussion going. This is a great topic. All right. And thank you all for being here. Uh, Georgianne, thanks for coming back. Oh, yes, absolutely. I guess we didn't chase you away on the last visit. No, I'm not scared off yet. (laughs) Good. Okay. So um, I want to talk to Christine first about the the need for this law and, and why you pushed so hard for it. Um, well, maybe I should start by telling Cora's story because that's okay. where this all goes back to. I had a perfect pregnancy, perfect delivery, delivered a 8-pound, 10-ounce baby on November 30th, 2009. She was pink and just gorgeous, just beautiful. Got a clear barrel, bill of health from the hospital. I took her home and had three perfect days with her, and then I woke up one early morning to feed her. was in the middle of feeding her. Um, I looked down. She was gone right there in an instant. In an instant, my entire life changed. A few days later, the coroner called me and told me that it was congenital heart disease that took her life. I'd never even heard the term. Never. We pulled out a dictionary to try to figure out what this was. Of course, the dictionary was no help. So we went on a mission to find out what took her and even if it could have been prevented and what we could do to save other babies. I later learned that it affected about 1 in 110 babies, which is on the, the numbers of other major diseases. I could not believe that I, as a pregnant woman who was well-educated, had never heard of this. And I learned about pulse oximetry screening because there were efforts by parent groups at the national level to make this, um, to add to add it to the recommended panel for newborn screening. So I did research for the next year and eventually contacted my legislator, Senator Brent Waltz out of Greenwood, and told him, presented the evidence to him, and he was really receptive once he saw that evidence, and he introduced a bill. And, um, of course, then the, the House walked out, so things got a little different. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and it, it actually passed as part of the budget, but it is law, and every baby will be screened in January 2012. Mm-hmm. Well, congratulations on your success. Thank you. Thank you. All right. Um, so this, this new law um, will have... There are 46 different things that will, babies will be screened for, as I understand it, I believe. Or is this just the, the one new thing? Yeah, it's the one new thing. Okay. It's, um, and it's 
screening for heart defects. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I think you're um, referring to the fact that Indiana screens for mm-hmm. um, a wide range of things, way more things, I think, than parents even realize when the, the what people commonly call the PKU or the newborn screen where they take blood. There, there's just a real comprehensive list. And I think Indiana's kind of at the forefront of the sorts of things that are done as a public health measure to try to, tr- um, excuse me, catch things that really can make a difference for that entire child's life if they're caught at birth or very soon after there. Yeah, I know I was uh, doing some research on this yeah. earlier this week, and that that is what I what I found. Mm-hmm. There, I think there are 46 different things. Yeah. There's a brochure that I've got here somewhere that lists everything, and, and the potential disorders are, are – it's a long list of things. It Dr. is. Dr. Malone, yeah. do you want to address that? Well, uh, a screening test looks for disorders that are not – readily available when we do a physical examination. And uh, these the most famous of the test, as, as George Ann said, is, is PKU, and that is a inability to digest a type of protein. And babies are born normal, and they will have uh, progressive neurological problems if this is not treated. And if we detect it and treat it, they live a normal, happy life. Mm-hmm. And so the, the screening process is to detect these things that we would not normally diagnose until they had already caused illness. Mm-hmm. Okay. Now, Sarah, you have a very young child. Were you aware of all these screenings? And I had t- no idea about <laughs> <laughs> And even when you said, was it 1 in 10 or no, 1 in 110? 1 in 110. Yeah, and it was something I hadn't even heard about until this came up yeah. in the legislature. Yeah. The session, it sounds like that was the same for you. Yeah, yeah, you definitely weren't alone. And I think there are a lot of parents out there who've never heard about it. Um, until until their their family's affected. Just from a personal level, I'm wondering how, how was that switch for you? You're turning from mother to advocate now, and and trying to navigate the legislative process. How how did you switch mindsets and and, and go into that role? Honestly, it's it's the only thing that kept me going. Um, you know what happened was beyond a tragedy. It, it, you know, it's enough to just to break a person, and. It, it made me get up in the morning knowing that I had a reason to get up um, and, and to use my – I'm a journalism by background – to use my research skills to learn how to do this. And I got lots of help along the way from other advocates and people working in other parent groups. Mm-hmm. What was the response that you got? You said that your senator uh, was very receptive. Did you – were the people in the legislature that you, you dealt with, were they surprised by what had happened to you? Were they, I mean, were they all uh, receptive and eager to help get this passed? Yeah, there wasn't much pushback um, at all. There was a little bit because it is new. Indiana is actually going to be the second state to implement. We were the first state to legislate um, because it passed in our budget in April. New Jersey implemented first and passed their law right around when we did. So we're the first two. So anytime anything is new, there's a little bit of – and rightfully, I'm glad that – you know I was glad to see that questions were asked um, and everything. And then it, once everybody was up to speed, then it was like, oh, okay, well, this is no-brainer, of course. Mm-hmm. All right. And, and Georgia, maybe you can address this, but I guess as a mother, you sort of look at us. It's another test your your baby has to right. go through, and how much is right. too much? What right. should we be testing for necessarily? That's a very that's a difficult question to answer. I think what, from a public health perspective, that the state is trying to do, and I think rightfully so, it's sort of what we want the state to do for us is to say. Let's look at what are the things that we can do in the most efficient manner that will maximize the good of the whole, but also protect individual families and children as well. So um, something like this, when you um, can do this at the time when most people intersect the medical delivery system, it's going to be, pardon the pun on delivery, but it's at birth. And then a lot of people just don't intersect with doctors again or the, uh, you know, so to say like, we'll do it later, we might do it, you know, at another time, or it could be done later. When you come to the pediatrician, well, there are people who don't always make their appointments at the pediatrician. Something comes up and they can't make it. They have other kids. Stuff happens. They forget to make another appointment. And you would, you would like to think that everybody maximizes the best for their, themselves and their families. But life is life. And so it's from that perspective. You're at the hospital. You've had your baby. It's a good time to do it. And it's a good time to do it also because of what Dr. Malone said. You know, you're making a difference. You catch something that can allow that child then, well, to live and that, you know, and to live well. So it's 
every I think every individual family has the right to make the decision for themselves, but I think good information helps families know that this is a good idea. Mm-hmm. It it's, sounds like it, yeah, in the case yeah. with Cora doing it, coming mm-hmm. back and doing it wouldn't even have been an option. You needed to find out. Yeah, it would have been too late. And that's that's typical. Yes. They want to do it after around after the 24-hour mark mm-hmm. um, because of the way, and Dr. Malone can elaborate on this in a little bit, mm-hmm. after um, how fetal, fetal circulation, your circulation is different um, in utero and it closes after you're born. And another thing I wanted to point out really quick is that even sometimes when I hear the word test, I'm kind of taken aback because to me it's not even really a test. It's a vital taker. The entire time I was in labor, I had a pulse ox on. The pulse ox was most likely in the room with Cora. It's very simple. It's non-invasive. And in fact, it's best when baby is calm. And this is what I really like about it because I, I don't like to interrupt mother-baby bonding. It's best if my mom holds baby even and keeps baby calm. And mm-hmm. it's just so low-key. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I think most hospitals are on board with, the, with that very idea of wanting mom and baby to be together. And I think the vast majority, there's probably, I think the hearing screen is, can't be done while uh, someone's holding the baby. But I think almost all the screening can be done while the, while the mother, while the mom and baby are skin to skin. Baby can be nursing through some of these. It's, you know, so I think that we can do it in a way that promotes every, you know, all the good things that we want to promote when we've got a, new ba- a newborn and a mom. I'm going to follow up on that in just a mm-hmm. second, but I want to give our phone numbers again. 855-0811 in Bloomington, 877-285-9348 from outside the Bloomington area and WFIU.org slash Noon Edition to join a live chat. Um, Dr. Malone, if you could follow up on that a little bit. Um, you know, I, I think Christine said it, you know, calling it a test is maybe an odd thing because it's a screening. But how how invasive are these screenings? How long does it take to do all the, the 46 different screenings that are done now? And this heart heart defect screening in particular. The uh, uh, calling it a vital sign is, is a very interesting term uh, in that uh, normally when we do vital signs, we – take a temperature and weigh somebody and check their blood pressure. And uh, over about the past 10 years, we've been calling oximetry the, the new vital sign. In other words, we, we normally check it if somebody comes in the office and is not breathing right. Uh, we've checked it for, for years in Bloomington Hospital routinely on newborns right after delivery. And now it's, it's uh, will be used to check it after 24 hours of age. Very easy test. Basically, a, a red light is put on a finger, toe, hand, foot, ear, and uh, we measure the color of the light that comes through. There's no needles, and uh, the color of the light tells us how well saturated the blood is with oxygen. And uh, normally, if the heart and lungs are working okay, it's highly saturated, over 95%. And if something is wrong with the heart or lungs, there may be a desaturation um, below 95% or below 93 or 90%, wherever we set our threshold. Very easy test to do. Mm-hmm. Oximetry, is that the name of the this particular test? Oximetry, they may call it pulse oximetry mm-hmm. or to check a biox, those are all all words that uh, might describe that test. Okay. And so what do you do if you find a problem? Um, the uh, test, if it's, if it's critical, uh, it can be actionable right away. So uh, a screening test never makes a diagnosis. Mm-hmm. Uh, the diagnosis uh, would be made by... Uh, Either checking a chest X-ray or checking a, you know, especially with suspected cyanotic congenital heart disease, your quote-unquote blue baby, then you would check an echocardiogram. Mm-hmm. Okay. That that's how you would make the diagnosis. All right. We have a caller on the line right now, though, Stephen Downs. We should we should yeah. get to your question, yeah, Stephen. Stephen Downs is uh, Indiana University School of Medicine Associate Professor of Pediatrics, and he's joined us on the program. Thanks for joining us. Sure, uh, happy happy to be uh, on with you. Sure, um, we, you know we're talking about this new test, the new screening. I should say, I'm sorry, <laughs> new, new screening <laughs> uh, that helps identify babies who uh, you know are 
at risk of, of a heart defect. Um, could you uh, just offer your uh, point of view about how important that test is? Oh, yeah, I'm happy to. In fact, I was... Um uh, I participated in the National Advisory Committee that reviewed um, all of the evidence about doing this for the Secretary's Advisory Committee on um, Diseases of Newborns and Children, and uh, it, it went through a fairly extensive scrutiny. <laughs> um, the, the, what's interesting about uh, this particular case, um, I, I, think, uh, I think it was uh, Ms. McCormick who pointed out that uh, that uh, Indiana is one of the earliest states, uh, partly due to her efforts to, to adopt this uh, screening procedure. Um, not all of the states have, and the, the biggest challenge here is with a lot of things is the devil's always in the details. Um, Dr. Malone pointed out that there are different cutoff points that you can use for pulse oximetry, and um, before this can be moved forward, people are going to have to consider how low of an oxygen level is too low. Um, it may seem obvious to people if you make the cutoff too high, then you'll be sending, referring lots and lots of perfectly healthy babies for evaluation. But if you set it too low, you will miss babies who may have uh, congenital heart disease that you'll want to detect. Um, the other thing that's going to be a little bit tricky is that the availability of things like the echocardiography that's needed to confirm whether or not a child has congenital heart disease isn't immediately available at all of the facilities where babies are born. And so figuring out the mechanisms to get those uh, babies where they need to be, uh, to be evaluated is another little detail that's going to have to be worked out. But uh, I think Indiana is going to be blazing the trail there. Okay. Um, Georgiana wanted to ask you, we've, uh, you know, we've had done some shows here about home births. Yes. Uh-huh. And I wanted to ask how these issues intersect, these mm-hmm. screenings sure. uh, that are done, and particularly this new screening. Yeah. So um, it is common practice for home birth midwives in the state of Indiana, at least the ones that I'm familiar with, to actually do what is typically called the newborn screen, meaning the blood draw that's done, the PKU that we were talking about earlier. That is because all those tests that are done, they're all sent to the same lab. And um, the cost for that, in that case, the parents pick up that. It's not a very expensive test. I actually don't know what the current cost is, but it's not very much. Um, So that's certainly a possibility. The hearing screen that's typically done um, at the hospital after birth is actually kind of challenging for families to do, though um, in discussion with some of the nurses at the hospital, um, we thought that um, speech and hearing here at Indiana University, that they could probably do that. Um, And I think probably some families have gone back to the hospital to have that done. Um, And again, like sort of like the other screenings, the hearing screen is intended to pick up subtle hearing loss. Um, This particular test, I think they could go to their pediatrician's office and have done. Mm -hmm. I think that would be a very simple thing to arrange. All right. If you have any questions about uh, about this new test, the, this new screening that will be um, done starting January 1st in hospitals for newborns uh, or anything else that in, involves uh, the, uh, well, basically a birth of a baby and, and what happens uh, in the, the first few days, weeks, months, uh, even the first few years. We have uh, a good panel of of guests who can address any of your issues. Dr. Richard Malone, pediatrician with Southern Indiana Pediatrics, Georgian Catalano, Executive Director for Bloomington Area Birth Services, Christine McCormick, who petitioned the state to pass the new law that mandates the heart screening after her baby, Cora, died at five days old. And also, Stephen Downs has joined us from the Indiana University School of Medicine in Indianapolis. Georgian, you had a question? I actually have a question for Dr. Downs. Um, I see that the, I've got in front of me what the legislation says, and it says that the screening will be done on all newborns greater to or equal 35 weeks gestation. I just wondered for parents to understand why that's the cutoff, if you can address that, Dr. Downs. Are you there? I, do you sorry, know, Christine? I'm, I'm oh, here. Sorry. Oh, yeah. sorry about that. <laughs> no, no, sorry. <laughs> I wanted to use mute so you all wouldn't have to hear me breathing. Um, the, um, uh, well, the, the, uh, uh, the reason uh, babies who are uh, below term will often give what are called false positive results. That is to say, um, it, it, um, 
obviously most children are are fine and do not have congenital heart disease um, and and so even if uh, even if the um, screening has a very low rate of false positivity that is looking like an abnormal result even when there's no abnormality there um, it can result in a huge number of of these uh, children who get unnecessarily referred uh, in younger age groups and so it's it um, so they so it the test is more reliable it becomes a, a more useful screen in kids who are uh, above that gestational age okay Thank you for answering that. I wanted to ask you, Dr. Dr. Downs, and also um, Dr. Malone, about uh, some of the what these screenings most typically might turn up, and and what are the what are the things that, that parents might be um, maybe least surprised that, that these screenings would find for their children. Dr. Malone, um, can, uh, screening for congenital. Thyroidism, it's, it's probably the most common uh, disorder that we uh, pick up through the screening. Uh, and that, that is a, a condition which requires a pill a day to take care of. Uh-huh. And uh, if, if not treated, can result in poor growth and uh, delayed uh, development. When you say a pill a day, is that for a short period of time or for forever? Generally for life. Uh-huh. Okay. Yeah, I, I agree. That's by far the most common thing that will be found through this uh, through this screening process. Um, I think it's also important for uh, parents to realize that that they're, in addition to um, the more common um, conditions that are uh, for which there's testing, there are many many others, and uh, and and it's good for new parents to be aware that this testing should be happening. Um, the biggest problem in the newborn screening world isn't really um, our, our ability to, to do the testing. It's to keep track of uh, babies after they have left the hospital so that when an abnormal result uh, is discovered, um, those, those children can be found. And so uh, this is a, um, uh, you're doing a real public service right now by alerting uh, new new parents to to make sure to follow up with their pediatricians and uh, and assure that those tests were done and that they were normal. Okay. Um, one thing I love about doing this show is that a lot of times the topics are things that I know absolutely nothing about going into the program. Um, this is uh, one of those cases I learned a little bit before I came on. But the, um, the the various screenings, as in Christine's case, I mean, this was a congenital heart defect in your in your baby in Cora, and it's not anything that could have been found, you know, early. Uh, you know, before the the birth, are there some of these tests that are done for conditions that perhaps um, some prenatal care might help to um, to mitigate? I just um, actually Cora's condition possibly could have been found in utero. Mm-hmm. The ultrasound is really important. I know a lot of women go in and think, "Oh, I'm going to find out the gender of my baby." That's when fifty percent of heart defects are found. Um, okay. So it's possible it could have been found there, but there's the ultrasounds aren't always easy to see a tiny baby heart. So, mm-hmm. um, you know, 50% aren't found on ultrasound. Okay. I don't, I don't think there's an answer to this, but I know just personally, though, getting the ultrasound and on my ultrasound for, for my son, they did find something. And it turned out it was nothing. But then the rest of your pregnancy, there is not a second that goes by that you're not thinking about that. So... You, you you raise uh, one of the one of the concerns about all um, screening procedures, which is that um, because most children do not have an underlying problem, when a screen turns out to be positive, um, as Dr. Malone pointed out, that does not make the diagnosis. It just heightens your awareness. But a diagnostic follow-up has to be done because it turns out that most of the time, when a screening test is positive, um, it's not. It's a false positive, mm-hmm. um, and and it's just something that we have to accept in any uh, broad screening where every child is going to be screened. Um, it it just tells us which babies to pay attention to and do additional evaluation of. Okay. Um, and, and I guess part of my question is: Are there, you know, we we hear about you know mo- certainly mothers. Um, um, pregnant women who do everything right, and then there are others who perhaps don't. You know, don't 
take care of proper nutrition. They might even, you know, smoke a cigarette or two. I mean, a lot of things that maybe they shouldn't do uh, if if they're following their doctor's uh, instructions. And I'm just wondering, in terms of these these various things that are found in the screenings, are there some of them that could be prevented? I mean, if 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 a a a screening comes back with a positive and it turns out to be something that you were screening for, are there things that the the mother could have done in terms of nutrition, taking care of herself, exercise, whatever the doctor's uh, orders were, that might have prevented that, if you follow my question? Yeah, mo- most of these, uh, most of the conditions that uh, for which this screening takes place um, are genetic, and okay. there uh, there really is n- nothing that uh, a mother could have done differently during pregnancy to prevent them. Um, this particular test, the congenital heart disease, there are probably a few cases of congenital heart disease that may be related to early uh, exposures in pregnancy, but it's it's uh, almost certainly a minority of them. Um, now, I don't want to sound like somebody who's suggesting mothers shouldn't be taking good care of themselves during pregnancy. That's critically important to prevent a number of other things that can happen, uh, including premature birth. Uh, but most of the things that are tested for uh, through newborn screening are things that, that would have happened regardless. Okay. All right, Dr. Downs. As a childbirth educator, um, this is something that we try to address in class. And what I tell people is that, um, you know, this it's kind of a crapshoot when you have a baby. <laughs> and you don't know what's going to happen when your two genetic materials come together. And this is the stuff that you don't have any control over. Mm-hmm. And that's why it's a good idea to do this kind of screening. I'd also like to address the issue of when the, when the screening is positive. I think it's important for parents to understand that once a screening is positive, it's, as Dr. Malone said, not diagnostic, and they're also not jumping to immediately intervening. What's going to happen is they're going to repeat the screen. And then once that screening is done, if the child, if the baby passes, the baby passes. You're, you know, you just go about your merry way. But if that screening also comes back positive, well, in an hour, they're going to do it again. And if then, if that one isn't, my understanding is I think it's you get three shots at it, and then they're going to proceed to diagnostic Uh from there. And this this is something that's done, as you said, an hour might go by. It's not like you take it a week later. No, no. And in fact, um, you know. Christine's situation points out why it's so important to do this in a a time-efficient manner. All right. We've uh, reached a time when we have to take a break. So uh, I wanted to thank Dr. Stephen Downs for being here with us. We're going to let you go and uh, appreciate your spending time with us today. We're talking about Indiana's new uh, screening for uh, birth defects, uh, heart defect in babies. Uh, The new screening will take effect on January 1st. You're listening to Noon Edition. We'll be right back. This is Noon Edition on WFIU. Production support comes from Smithville, information at smithville.net, and from Premier Ortho, online at mypremierortho.com. You can take WFIU with you by downloading podcasts directly to your PC, Mac, or MP3 player. Programs such as Noon Edition, Ask the Mayor, and Harmonia, and short features like Kinsey Confidential, the Ether Game Musical Mini Quiz, and Play and Opera Reviews are all available on demand. Pick them up at WFIU.org. And have you heard WFIU's news features? The WFIU News Team brings you expanded and in-depth reports on topics affecting South Central Indiana. Catch the Friday feature just after 8.30 during Morning Edition, just before Noon Edition, and at 5.45 during All Things Considered. They're also archived on our website, WFIU.org. Welcome back to Noon Edition. I'm Bob Zaltzberg from the Herald Times, along with Sarah Whitmire, News Director of WFIU and WTIU. Uh, we have uh, four guests. Well, we had four guests. Now we have three guests with us, three in the studio. <laughs> Richard Malone, a pediatrician with Southern Indiana Pediatrics, a part of IU Health Southern Indiana Physicians. Georgianne Catalano, who is the Executive Director for Bloomington Area Birth Services, and Christine McCormick 
the mother of Cora, who died at five days old of congenital heart disease. Uh, she has, she's the, uh, the person most responsible for petitioning the state to pass a new law that mandates heart screening of newborns. If you have questions or comments, please phone us at 855-0811 or 877-285-9348. You can go to the website, wfiu.org slash noon edition. And Sarah, you might tell them that they can just talk directly with you right now. Yeah, if, if you go to WFIU.org, you can join the live chat right now, and we're actually chatting from here in the studio. All right. So, uh, Christine, I wanted to go back to – we were talking about the screenings and the potential for false positives, and you were telling us at the break about uh, something that happened with you. Yeah, uh, Cora actually um, – she tested positive for jaundice, and I only know about the pulse oxometry test. I'm not a doctor, so I'm not going to use the correct <laughs> terms here. But um, and I flipped out. I, you know, something's wrong with my baby. They said, "Oh, she might have to stay in the hospital an extra night." So nervous. I turned to the physician's assistant. I was like, "How much should I be freaking out right now?" She says, "This is a two. Relax. It's fine." The test came back, and, and it was fine. It was a false positive. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, and now I wish that it had been wrong because she would have been in the hospital. The situation might have been different. We don't know. But, um, yeah. you know, that anxiety compared to the anxiety of my baby dying in my arms doesn't compare. And, I mean, as much as that wasn't fun to go through, I'd much rather a million moms go through that than one mom go through what I did or what I know too many other women have gone through. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. I can't imagine. Dr. Malone? As, as Dr. Downs uh uh, alluded to a a false positive is is inconvenient and a false negative is a disaster. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's, okay. that's an excellent way to put it. So, Christine, have you talked with many mothers who've gone through the same thing that you have? Sadly, yeah, yeah, uh, yeah. Tomorrow, October, and I just want to really quickly recognize all the moms who've had babies die of anything, but if, you know, of congenital heart disease, because that's what we're talking about. Tomorrow, October fifteenth, is um, Infant Loss Remembrance Day. Oh, okay. So if you, you know, if you'd all take a second to remember Cora and all, all of the babies. I mean, there are babies who have died really similarly to Cora's story. They've gone home and died even like feeding, where you know I thought I was going to be the only one, and it's not common. I don't want to scare moms either because it's not super common, but it's not super rare either, unfortunately. Okay. I have to play the devil's devil's advocate here and just wonder, though, how much should we be legislating these types of things and how much of this should be left to the parents to make that decision? Should lawmakers be deciding what tests I have to get for my baby? And I, I guess I'll, I'll, since I push for legislation, I should probably answer that. <laughs> um, you know, I just want to point out that, it's, you know, it was based on evidence. Um, it was based on studies upon studies that, that this works. And otherwise, it wouldn't be done. And and then the time, you know, we could have waited for clinicians to maybe do it on their own, but it would have been years and years on the road. And in that time, babies would have died. And parents can opt out of the screening, too. They don't have to have it on their child if they don't want to. If it was something invasive, I might have not been um, as much of a powerhouse advocate for it because I, I really appreciate the mom's um, – the mom, mother-daughter bonding time and our, the mother-baby, excuse me, bonding time, thinking of my daughter and, you know, those precious moments. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Dr. Malone? I, I think the uh, legislators are not making parents take a test. They're making me and the hospitals of the state offer the test. Okay, so you offer it, but the parents can opt out. That's what you said. Would you recommend to your patients that they take the test? Yes. <laughs> right. Okay. Good. Yeah, and I think it's up to those of us that work with pregnant women to sort of help them walk this line, give them good information, make sure that they understand why we're doing it. I think what people get their, um, you know, resistance up about is like Christine said, when you hear the word test, you think, well, what do you mean a test? Why do I have to have a test for my child? Is there something wrong? Why are you doing this? And and I understand that, and I think validating that, like, I, hey, I know it can sound like a really big deal. This is why we're doing it. And if they've got all the information and they still choose not to, then they take responsibility for that decision. Fair mm-hmm. enough. Mm-hmm. But I think it's up to the rest of us who work with families to make sure they have access to that full information. And, you know, as Christine's trying so hard to do, not scare them, but say, you're now a parent. You have a responsibility for another life. You need to think about what are the, what, how best can you do that? You know, Sarah, I'm glad you asked that question because yeah. it, it also brings up just this whole idea of, you know, public policy about health care. I mean, this mm-hmm. is 
It's a huge issue in Washington and Indianapolis as well. Um, Are there costs involved with the screening and with all the other screenings? And who who pays those costs? Are those the the patient insurance companies? I can answer about pulse oxometry screening because it's it's the newest one. It's estimated to cost between $1 and $10. it's very, very inexpensive for the actual pulse oximeter. The, the real cost comes in when you have to refer the baby on to the, the testing that Dr. Malone was talking about. Um, there was actually a, the study in Sweden, though, said that one early diagnosis paid for all of the other screenings because the later a baby comes in, like if Cora had survived, um, we did rush her to the hospital, which is too late. Her hospital bill would have been millions and millions of dollars, um, most likely, or at least a million dollars <laughs> more yeah. expensive. Mm-hmm. So the the cost is pretty minimal mm-hmm. for this type of screening, and I think for all the screenings across the board, I th- I think that's I think that's correct, and I think you're pointing out exactly what um, defines a public health measure. You're trying to do the most cost effective thing um, for the greater good, and quite frankly, it is in everyone's best interest that we uh, catch these things early so that we aren't paying out you know tens of thousands millions of dollars however much you know it is to to take care of babies with hypothyroidism or with you know other congenital problems that could be caught really um, early and make a big difference Mm -hmm. the uh, societal cost of a baby who survives uh, one of these uh, one of these conditions in a damaged state uh, is is caring for somebody lifelong who requires uh, regular medical medical interventions. Mm-hmm. What would life be like for someone like that? I, I... Uh, say, for instance, a, a child with a congenital heart disease is, uh, is diagnosed uh, uh, too late and, and uh, is brought to the hospital and resuscitated and, and survived. Generally, what happens if you have lack of oxygen to the brain, you'll, you'll require uh, therapies for life for, for activities such as walking, speech, uh, education. And uh, so th- those are, uh, you know, the, the cost to the family in terms of, of missed opportunity is, is immeasurable, but the, the cost to society in terms of lifelong medical care is is measurable and is very high. All right. Our phone numbers again are 855-0811-877-285-9348. WFIU.org slash Noon Edition is our web address if you want to join the live chat with uh, Sarah. And, uh, you know, I might mention we've got 15 minutes or so to go in the program, and you have a great panel of people here, um, Dr. Richard Malone, Georgiana Catalano, Catalano, and Christine McCormick, and they can talk about any of these issues that ha- have to do with uh, birth to five years, let's say. Um, Bloomington Area Birth Services, of course, has a lot of different issues that they deal with all the time. Uh, so if you want to give us a call, that would be great. I want to go back to Christine because I'm really fascinated by your, your story. I know it's, it's a it, obviously it's a, it's a severe tragedy, and I, I'm sorry for your loss. You. I'm interested in how you um, sort of recovered, used your journalism background to decide that this is what I'm going to do. You know, what, what, your steps from research on what may have happened, what could, what could have prevented it to happen, to going to your, legislate, your legislator to sitting and waiting out the walkout last year. I mean, you had a lot of things to deal with. Could you sort of walk us through some of how you, you yeah. did that? And it is kind of interesting because it was really born actually in social media. Um, when Cora died, I felt so alone because babies didn't die in my family. I thought that happened to other families, and I learned that Cora's probably wasn't genetic. It was just a fluke. Um, so I didn't know where to turn, what to do. So I kind of turned to social media through through uh, Twitter and Facebook and, and a blog that I write and met a lot of other moms and met moms that were also advocate and also working on this at, at the federal level. As Dr. Downs talked about, I've, I've spoken to the parent groups that were at the same meetings that he was at. Um, and through social media, just learned so much um, and found the research studies and, and just knew from the start that I didn't. I did not want this to happen again, and unfortunately, it probably will. But my mission has just been that no mom finds out about congenital heart disease from the coroner. And unfortunately, it's going to be a long time before we can um, 
do away with congenital heart disease as a whole. But as on an awareness level, we can make sure that moms are aware that it happens, not, not to scare them, but just because I think, you know, education is so powerful. So after that, I, I, like I said, I wrote to Senator Waltz and presented all the evidence. And I actually went to testify when it was in front of the health committee, which was, you know, pretty hard to do, pretty emotional. But I, I got through it and, um, you know, and it, it passed the Senate. And it was I think it was the vote was like there were four people who voted against it and everybody else voted for it. And it was, um, you know, on its way to the House. And then the walkout happened. And I thought that it was going to be next year, that it was done. And then I later found um, then Senator Walsh wrote me and said, hey, it passed in the budget. I thought that meant like they funded it. I didn't know that they really, and this is again from not being an expert, that they passed things in the budget as in it was now law. And so I like looked one day and I was like, oh, it's law. I mean, just the day that I found out was just pretty incredible. Mm-hmm. I'm wondering, what is the process typically like with doctors or lawmakers in terms of deciding which screenings babies are going to receive? And we're talking about this whole list that, that babies receive, but how does that happen? From a doctor's point of view, there are committees of experts that that look at uh, incidents of illnesses that might be detected. Uh, when I first started uh, practicing in Bloomington in 1989, our newborn screen, which is the blood test, tested for seven different uh, disorders. And there were many parents that were uh, uh, opting for commercially available uh, extended newborn screens that tested for many others. And, and uh, so the, the knowledge was there. And then, then the will uh, came about uh, between uh, physicians on the American Academy of Pediatrics and in the national and Indiana chapters and the neonatologists up at Riley who uh, uh, have administered the newborn screening program to add these tests automatically. So the same blood stick that we were doing in 1989 to get seven diseases is now uh, getting uh, over 50 diseases. Is it generally this, do those things happen at the state level first or is that more federally generally? The American Academy of Pediatrics is is a non-governmental national organization of of pediatricians, and they would be highly involved in in the selection of uh, medical recommendations for testing for newborn screening, and then the the decisions on implementing that uh, would they could make a recommendation as a standard of care, but the state then would be uh, legislator would need to actually legislate that if we were going to make it a policy rather than a practice. Dr. Milano, if you don't mind me asking, how long have you been a pediatrician? Oh, uh, I uh, graduated from uh, med school in uh, 1985 and finished my residency uh, up at Riley Children's Hospital in 1988, and I've Uh been in Bloomington since 1989. Yeah, so I I, I asked that because I just wondered if there are a lot of uh, trends or differences you see today from when you first started practicing <laughs> in pediatrics, or is it just every day you come in and it could be something different? Uh, they tell us when we start medical school that half of what we know, what we're gonna, they're going to teach us is wrong, but we just don't know which half. <laughs> and, uh, as, as, uh, as a pediatrician, uh, I finally succeeded in my goal of, of getting a few gray hairs and uh-huh. There's, there's nothing like gray hairs and, and seeing kids to to learn uh, that that different things will uh, manifest themselves in different ways. Mm-hmm. So there's, you can never be sort of relaxed and say, well, this I'm going to see a lot of this this year or I'm going to see a lot of that. <laughs> <laughs> I, I, re- I remember uh, walking down the, the uh, hallway uh, to Bloomington Hospital when I was a young pediatrician and I was speaking with an older family practitioner about a, an article in the newspaper that said it's going to be a bad flu season this mm-hmm. year. I, I mentioned that to him, and he goes, you know, they say that every year. Yeah. <laughs> Ooh, I need to watch what we write, I guess. <laughs> All right, 855-0811-877-285-9348, WFIU.org slash Noon Edition to join the live chat. So, um, Christine, do you have... 
any plans for uh, you know, other legislative action? Are there things that you found in your research that you think, you know what, there are some other issues that um, moms and might help protect moms and newborns that maybe I'll, I'll – See if I can help on that too. Yeah, I mean, this is definitely keyed in interest for me to empower moms, um, you know, to to get the information out there for in a way that they can understand and in a way that it's all in one place. Um, legislatively, I have no plans right now. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, Georgianne, same question to you. I mean, are there issues that that you'd like to see pushed in the in the state house this year, or things from your your advocacy perspective that you think should happen? Oh, that's a good question. I guess I'm all always hoping that the midwifery bill will finally pass and that, um, you know, certified professional midwives will get licensed by the state. That um, People have been working on that for like 18 years now. So uh, hopefully someday it'll pass and we'll join the other states that have done that. Uh, I... It's interesting. I, I guess I live in such a world of education that I don't think about the legal aspect very much. I have a lot of well, I, I have to admit, I do have a lot of faith in, in you know, people doing public health. I think their hearts are in the right place. I think they're doing a good job and they're really trying. I mean, you know, and so I kind of like just trust that they'll they'll put it forth. Um, I would I am happy that Indiana has good breastfeeding laws. I mean, you know, saying that women can breastfeed wherever uh, a woman has a right to be. She can breastfeed. Um, I, I I'm not sure that this should go through legislation, but I do want to see more family friendly work policies in place. I think that would be a really good thing for us as a state, uh, as a community. Uh, and that it's well documented that the financial return on that is good. Maybe you'd like to do a show on that sometime. Maybe we will. So you think that should just be going through (laughs) the employers? Then is that what you mean? Um, You you know, um, I think that uh, the federal government put together something called the business case for breastfeeding, and I'd like to see more employers have that in their hands, that more human resources departments are aware of that, that they know that at the very least, every dollar they spend on lactation support for their employees, they're going to get $3 back. So I think kind of giving that kind of information, I think overall would meet a lot of public health goals and would also improve the work life for a lot of people. Mm -hmm. People are under a lot of stress. I'm going to follow up on the education mm-hmm. uh, comment that you made from for both, uh, well, actually for all of you, but particularly for you and, and Dr. Malone. Um, you know, when you deal with a lot of uh, potential new moms and, and even new moms right after they they become new moms, uh, what are the things that that uh, you think they really need to know that maybe they they don't know i mean when you're in terms of education you know are there I'm, sorry sarah i mean are there are there certain how things, much time have we no, no, no. here's my my simple question from my simple mind i mean are there are there certain things that just come up time and time again where you know that these questions are going to come up for a a pregnant woman before she gives birth that these are things that you know you definitely 100 percent want to make sure that she knows I don't know about you, but I've, Dr. Malone, but I've kind of tried to s- distill it down to some basics. So, like, okay, so when you're pregnant, there are things you can control. There are things you can't control. What can you control? You can control what you put in your body, like how you eat and drink, and how you exercise. Those You can control that, and that is will go a long way towards giving a healthy pregnancy and that sort of thing. Once the baby's here, we have two basic rules in our office. Feed the baby and protect the milk supply. So that's those are pretty fundamentals. Uh, I find that women are inundated with a lot of information. Mm-hmm. We try to keep it simple. I don't okay. know. What do you think? Dr. Malone? <laughs> <laughs> I, I think there, there is, there is uh, no such thing as a, a preparatory course for parenting. However, I, I would recommend that parents who have not had several children already attend prenatal classes. I think that moms who uh, are considering breastfeeding, which we recommend for for all moms, should consider uh, going to a breastfeeding class. Therefore, uh, after the baby is out, all that they are learning about breastfeeding is review when their body's trying to recover from having had a baby. I have to confess, I was this crazy mother who, who read absolutely everything. I think I rented every video from the library and But it gets to the point where it kind of scares you to death. And when when my son was born at the hospital, I was shocked because they said they were going to come in and do like a new parent test or something. And I was telling my 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 son's dad, I said, we've got to make sure we do a good job 
on this test. That's like a, po- a post-test. I thought it was. Like, this is going to determine whether we get to take our son home. We've got to do well. Um, and then <laughs> the questions were, do you have a rear-facing baby seat? Do you have smoke alarms in your home? And I was so disappointed because I felt like I prepared for this. And you were going to learn what the secret was that would make it all work. I was craving that and didn't didn't get it and was almost scared by it, thinking some of the moms who are leaving with this baby, and I had read everything and still felt like I had absolutely no idea. So... I don't know what the answer is to that. But. <laughs> you'll you'll know everything when you're a grandma. <laughs> yeah. Right. Yeah. All right. We have just two minutes to go, and I and I want to uh, go back to Christine and just ask you know if you have a message for those those moms out there that are getting ready to have their their baby. Was this your first baby? Yeah, Cora yeah. is my first and first only, and only child. child. Yeah. Uh-huh. Okay. Um, you know, before Jan- before January. Ask about the pulse oximetry test. It's something that everybody at hospital should have, and there are protocols in place now. So the pediatrician pretty much are aware of it, I think, at this level. Um, and, you know, and, and I know this is all scary stuff, and I don't want moms to live in fear. But I just want, you know, the connection to be made that sometimes educating yourself is, is power. If you know a little more about congenital heart disease, then it's kind of something you can control. You can watch for signs and symptoms. And if Dr. Malone wouldn't mind, I'd love it if you could talk about some of the signs and symptoms of CHD because – Pulse oximetry does not catch every CHD. It does not catch every heart defect. Dr. Malone, we have about a minute. Pulse oximetry uh, catches cyanotic heart disease, which is the blue baby. The majority of heart disease are pink babies, and babies who have evidence of heart problems may be poor feeders. They may be rapid breathers. They may be less active than other babies. And if, if we're not feeding right or breathing right, we do want to hear from you. They call the, their pediatrician at that yes, point? Yes, sir. Okay. All right. Well, we're out of time. I want to thank uh, our guests. It's been a, a really good conversation today. I want to thank Dr. Richard Malone, Georgianne Catalano, Catalona, sorry, Georgianne, okay. <laughs> and Christine McCormick. Christine, thanks for coming here and sharing your story. Thank you. For Sarah Whitmire and uh, our producers, Dalton Main and Gretchen Frazee, and engineer Mike Pashkash, I'm Bob Zaltzberg. Thanks for listening. Noon Edition is a production of WFIU and the Herald Times. A podcast of this and other WFIU programs is available at WFIU.org. Production support comes from Smithville, a locally owned business serving central and southern Indiana since 1922 with residential and business internet, voice, and security services. Smithville, local pride, global technology. Information at smithville.net. Also, Premier Ortho, a division of Premier Healthcare, helping people living with injuries and chronic back, spine, or joint pain to get back on their feet. Premier Ortho. 333-1933 online at mypremierortho.com.